Well, hey, good morning. How are you? What is love, right? I mean, many bopped their heads along back in the uh, <clears throat> 90s. Woo. And, uh, but few of us stopped to consider that real important question. What is love? Uh, it's a great question, really. What, what is it? And maybe more importantly, why is it that after thousands and thousands of years, we can't seem to, as a humanity, agree upon the answer to that question? Uh, even, uh, even a gal named Satine and a guy oddly named Christian debated this very hot topic in the famed, tragic, but beautiful love story, Moulin Rouge, right? Christian declaring, love is like oxygen. Satine protesting, what? Christian, love is a many splendid thing. Love lift us up where we belong. All you need is love. Satine, don't start that again. All you need is love. A girl has got to eat. All you need is love. She'll end up on the street. All you need is love. Love is just a game. She didn't apparently agree with John Lennon. Okay, so, yeah, Satine, that was a from the beautiful story Moulin Rouge and that yielded that great, great refrain, one of the great movie lines in all of human history, I think, which is the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. And you hear that and it's like, yes, yeah, like the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. Yes, and it's so Dr. Susie, it must be true. <laughs> but then you think about it, you're like, wait, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. Okay, but, but how? Like, how does, how does that actually work? So who better than to examine this idea, maybe even offer a bit of insight to it for us, than a fellow from the New Testament named John, not to be confused with Lenin, although they would both agree you need love, okay? John of the New Testament, one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, often called the beloved disciple, and in modern times, he's even picked up the moniker, the disciple of love, which sounds like an awesome 70s-themed disco-infused leading man, does it not? Like, the disciple of love. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? A little wah-wah. <laughs> but you should know, this is how John actually constantly referred to himself <laughs> in his gospel. He was one of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, and he wrote in his gospel, this is what he wrote, he referred to himself, he almost always, to, almost to the point of nauseam, would say, the disciple Jesus loved, referring to himself, which is a little odd, right? Like he would say things like, oh, the crew was moving along and behind them was the disciple Jesus loved. And he's talking about himself. And they'd be like, and, and like, going to the empty tomb, he'd be like, Peter was running to the empty tomb, but he was passed by the disciple Jesus loved. We get it, John, you're faster than Peter, and Jesus loved you. We get it, right? But, but for John, you should know, it was a bit like, yeah, yeah, he loves me, and he loves me. You see, John had experienced, he had encountered, he had touched He'd literally touched, and he'd been touched by, and he had become overwhelmed by a love like no other, the very love of God in the flesh. 
And that's why we start with John today as we jump into a new series of the next three weeks where we're exploring three different books of the Bible in their entirety. And not only that, as a community and a church, we are going to read all three of these books from beginning to end. So I hope you don't have lunch plans. Um, I'm kidding. You're probably getting a little nervous, like, what? <laughs> but, uh, but maybe that makes you a little nervous. Maybe it's even a little overwhelming if you're new to the whole Bible thing or to church. But don't check out just yet. You might be pleasantly surprised because what if I were to tell you, and I'm about to tell you, so it's not a very long what if. Um, <laughs> if you read three pages of Scripture, three single pages of Scripture over the next three weeks, by the time this series is over, you will have read three entire books of the New Testament. Not a bad deal, right? Just three one-page things. So yeah, we're talking about John, but we're talking about a very particular book, a one-page a one-page letter that's powerful. And if you think about it, the reality is one page of anything that's well done, uh, one well-written document can really be a game changer. Think about it, one page of well-written poetry, one page of a well-written love letter, especially one page of scripture, can literally change the trajectory of someone's life. Maybe you can think of a song lyric, maybe a stanza of poetry, maybe it's a political document for you, maybe it's a well-written blog post or that well-written love letter that inspired or affected you so deeply and so profoundly that it literally moved you both cognitively and viscerally from one place to an entirely different place. This past week on Tuesday, I celebrated my 50th birthday. Uh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, thank you. I know, I'm surprised I made it too, thanks. Uh, yeah, when I was a kid, I never thought I'd see 50. I was like, you could get this far, but I'm, pl I'm glad to be here. I have to tell you, so far, it feels a lot like 49, but I'll, we'll see. Um, but yeah, I celebrated my 50th birthday this past Tuesday uh, with uh, my family. My son, Logan, came into town. Uh, my daughter, Lainey, my wife, Shala, we, we got a house. It's one of my favorite things about Austin. I have a lot of favorite things about Austin, but not the least of which is this, that like 30 minutes from our home on the Lago side of Lake Travis, you can get these killer homes on the lake and drive 30 minutes and feel like you're just way away from everything. It's literally a getaway. Like, and so we had this sort of staycation experience together where we were able to I was able to celebrate with my family both Father's Day and my 50th birthday, which was very meaningful. And my wife, I will tell you, Shala, killed the game at making me feel honored on my 50th birthday. She did amazing, here's what she did. She, for weeks, went and, and sought out people from my entire life, from the time I was a baby to elementary school, people I went to elementary school with, people I went to junior high with, high school, the collegiate years, you know, some people, that's a years. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, my professional life, both in ministry and the corporate world, she, she got all these people to send in, write up one-page letters or a quick video just sharing a favorite memory they had with me or maybe talking about an impact that some encounter with me had onto their life. And so she gave me these letters in this box right here. And so in this box are literally 50 envelopes with the addition of my family uh, that wrote just one-page letters. And I gotta tell you, it was so powerful, it moved me. I, I couldn't even get through them. They kept saying, read them out loud to us. And I was like, something's in my eye, I cannot do it, you know? <laughs> Like that, you know, and, uh, I was like, you're, you're going to have to read them. And so they, they literally had to read many of the letters because I just couldn't get through them. It was just so powerful. And there is something so powerful about just a, a well-written, short document 
that can really change you and move you. And that's a great birthday idea, by the way. If you want to steal that, give credit to my wife, Shala, but it was great. Um, and so today we're going to look at a one-page letter together from this guy named John. In the Bible, we actually have five different collections of writings from this guy named John. So he's not exactly a one-hit wonder, but there, you, you could say this is a one-page wonder, which is what we were originally going to name this series, but we thought one-hit wonder would be more, uh, would be more fun. But anyway, five different collections of writings from this guy named John, the disciple of love. If you want to play that theme song in your mind again, you may. But here it is. We have his gospel, the gospel of John. Towards the back of the New Testament, we have three letters, the first, second, and third John. And then to close the scriptures, and to close the New Testament, we have that really freaky book, the book of Revelation, <laughs> all written by John. Our main focus today is going to be on this one-page letter known as Second John, and we're going to read it together and go through it. It's a letter written by John, one of Jesus' again, original 12 disciples, who would have been really young during the time of Jesus' ministry, but from that time and on, he built himself quite a resume. You see, John was an eyewitness to the life, to the death, to the resurrection of Jesus. He was actually one of the, he was a lone disciple that was actually at the cross when it occurred, when the death occurred, the others had fled. He wrote to help people believe. He was candid about this. He was very frank. He said, I'm writing so that you believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He consistently and always testified that Jesus was with God and he was God from the very beginning, that his light has always been shining into the darkness, that Jesus is full of grace and truth, and that all who believe in Jesus and trust in his name are given the right to be called children of God. Now, a little context for the book of 2 John is this. It's years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. It's now 70 AD, and tragedy befalls the entire Jewish community when Rome basically takes Jerusalem and destroys the temple. So Jerusalem falls to the Romans. They just, they, they, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the leader of Rome just decides, I'm taking it, and destroys the temple. And this happens in 70 AD. And during this time, you should know, John fled Jerusalem when it fell to the Romans and the temple was destroyed. This was devastating for the Jews, you understand. And I want you to think about it for a second. Imagine in your own life, what do you do when something that you centered much of your life and your entire belief system on and around, your whole worldview is wrapped up into a space, to a place, and that gets destroyed? Like, what does that do to your identity, right? But here's the interesting thing. The first century Jews that had started following Jesus, these first Jesus followers, uh, they, they, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was God incarnate, the Son of God. They also now believe that Jesus' followers, those who were following him, were filled with his spirit, with fill, were filled with the Holy Spirit, and that now they represented the presence of God in the world. And it's like, why would they think that? I mean, in the shadow of the destruction of the temple, how is it that these people would not feel destroyed as well? It's so easy to imagine them feeling easily destroyed, but they were not. They were, these, this particular group was not dismayed. And it's interesting, the scriptures actually point to this mysterious truth, this idea of God with us. This is not a New Testament idea. This is an idea that's throughout the entire canon of scripture. You see it in Genesis in, in Eden, God walking with, God close to humanity, God with us. That was the original intent, the original sin, the break, the fall, right? 
But God says, I still want to be with you. And so in an Exodus, in the second book, in the, in the book of the Bible there, they, they set up the tabernacle structure where God will be with his people, God with us. In 1 Kings is the building of the temple, God with us. God would be behind the curtain of the temple. God would be with us. And then in the Gospels, we're introduced that God is literally coming in the flesh. And in John's Gospel, he talks about the God who walked with us, who walked amongst us. It's told in the four Gospels in the Gospel of John. This is how John actually records it in the first chapter of his gospel. He says, the word being Jesus, which is a great nickname, by the way, the word. Could you really, the word just walked in. That's pretty awesome, by the way. But the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. You see, the temple destruction didn't destroy these first followers of Jesus because of what Jesus had taught them. This was recorded by John himself, that, 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 uh, this, this idea of this new temple idea. When the Jews were demanding of Jesus, because Jesus was doing profound and amazing things in front of them, and they couldn't explain it, so they demanded, how are you doing this? What authority do you have to do this? And this is how it's recorded by John again in his gospel. Then the Jews demanded of him, being Jesus, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So it's kind of like, how, how could these earliest followers of Jesus be, be a place where they're destroyed, not shaken by this? Living in the shadow of the destruction of the temple and still under the oppressive Roman rule? How could, they, how could they live so counterculturally? How could they love so fiercely in their communities? Well, John tells us they didn't just know the words of Jesus, they believed them. They believed the scriptures and lived out the words that Jesus had spoken to them. God's presence had already begun to spread before the destruction of the temple, well beyond the city walls of Jerusalem, all throughout the world, even to the ends of the earth had begun, Jesus, just as Jesus had instructed and this is a context we dive into today as we read through this one-page letter known as 2 John. It's 13 simple verses you should know, 13. Even a slow reader could read this book in just a couple minutes. 13 verses. We're going to try and hone in on some of what John is trying to teach us about actually living in the way of Jesus in a world that is largely opposed to this way. There are three observations that need to be pointed out. This is hardly an exhaustive view of love, but there are three things that John particularly points out about love in these 13 quick verses. The first thing we're going to learn right away is that love needs truth. It needs it. So John opens his letter, this brief letter, this is what he says, the elder, which is himself. He's saying, uh, the elder is speaking, uh, to the lady chosen by God and to her children. Could have been a particular woman, probably a house church, maybe a woman who led the house church, and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. Love needs truth. And we, we, we learn a couple things right out of the gate in these quick verses here. One, there is this lady, this chosen lady, again, could have been a particular woman who led a house church. It probably was the entirety of the house church. It's like, this is a chosen lady, this house church. And you should know that 
followers of Jesus at this time in history only met in homes. That's all they had available to them. In fact, followers of Jesus met only in homes to the 4th century, to to the 300s when a Roman emperor named Constantine was actually converted to Christianity and then started the construction of cathedrals and buildings. For 300 and some years, homes were it. And Christianity spread like wildfire in that time. um, We're also told in this passage that we are chosen. This is an idea that the people are chosen. And here's what we have to do. We have to decide if we want to be adopted or not, if we're actually going to be adopted as children. God pursues us. We decide if we'll say yes. The other thing that John points out quickly and consistently, he's pointing this out all throughout his writings, is simply this. John knows the truth is a person. Truth is actually a person, and the truth is in us potentially and with us if we align and surrender our will to that, to that person, which is the person of Jesus. For John recorded these very words of Jesus himself back in his gospel. John 14, 6 says, has Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's interesting. You notice he doesn't say, I am a way. I am a truth. I'm a life. And he says, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. John points us to something really important here in his opening of 2 John. That truth is something that is outside of us. And it's actually Jesus himself. And, and that it can come live inside of us for those who have trusted in Jesus. And it's important to note that as humans, we really need this to be true, right? That, that, that truth is something that we don't get to decide for ourselves. It's something that is, lives outside of us. Because truth, uh, if it's not that, it, we're in danger of espousing our own personal opinions and preference and then defending them to the better end. And that never happens, right? Where we just say, well, I think this, and I'll defend it. But, the, but that's not how truth works. Truth is always something outside. Like, I'll, I'll tell you, there's a lot of truth I don't like in life. I, I don't like to sleep. I want to tell you, I don't like to sleep. I never have. I, I just want to stay awake and keep going, keep going. But the, but the, but the bitter, bitter truth is this. If I don't sleep, I become really cantankerous, and no one wants to be around me anyway, right? So I might as well sleep. I don't like it, but it's true. You see what I'm saying? Like, that's how truth works. Truth is something outside of us. I had a great friend, in fact, his note is in that box, you should know, a guy named Ron that I did ministry with for several years in Virginia, and he used to say this, this really catchy phrase when people would start getting really deep into their own personal opinions. He'd say, you know, here's the thing about God. If God never disagrees with you, it's not God. It's you. Right? Like, if there's not a force outside of you to say, no, I, I want you to come to this truth And it's outside of you. It's outside of what you would regulate towards, but you can move towards it in me. That's when you know. I mean, that's the way of love, and it needs to be rooted in that truth so that the love of God can literally be an outpouring of our lives. It's not just some word or some emotion that we throw around when it feels good or it's convenient for us to do so. It's a real expression of something we're learning, a truth that we're we're embracing that we didn't conceive of. Which leads to our second observation in the book of 2 John. Love not only needs truth, but love needs action. In fact, you might say action is the proof of love's truth. Action is the very proof that there is truth in love, that that, that you truly have love, that love is indeed true. And this is what John says, "It it has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, 
the one we've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in, the obedience to, in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Walking in truth, walking in love, right? Love is best displayed through action because action is the proof of love's truth. That you walk, that you ju- don't just talk of it. That you walk the walk, you don't just talk the talk. Now this is going to be a bit of a callback for John because John, you should know, is always consistent in this messaging of loving one another. It was, like, it, was like, it was like a drum that he beat over and over again. And consider these words that John shared in his letter, his first letter that we know is 1 John, that just precedes 2 John. Check this out, what he writes. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Action is the proof of love's truth. There is a story in church tradition that's very rich uh, that, that John, as you, you may know, John was the last of the original disciples and the apostles. He was, he was the longest living. He was the last eyewitness that was left, these apostles. And so there, there was a church in Ephesus that had been under the oversight of a, of, of a guy named Paul, one of the first Christians of the first century who wrote a good portion of the New Testament, and he kind of oversaw the church at Ephesus and wrote a book to it called the Book of Ephesians, and he was kind of the overseer. When Paul was martyred for his faith, John became the primary overseer of the church at Ephesus, and there's a, a story rich in church tradition that says that the church at Ephesus longed so deeply for John to come and speak to them. And he was well up in years, and they just wanted to hear a message from the great apostle John. And John came to Ephesus, and it was so, he was so utterly that they had to carry him in. And they carried him to the front of the home. And they were all like, you know, just on, woo, on bended knee, like, oh, give us the words, give us the words, give us a message. And John shared with them three words and three words only. The three words were love one another. The church there longed to hear from the great apostle, and he shared three simple words, and they knew exactly what he had meant because he had been saying them for so long. Loving one another is literally the proof that the truth lives in us. It's a great reminder of what Jesus said, in fact, when he was asked by the Pharisees, the Pharisees when they were trying to pin him down and say, well, of all the great commandments, because at this time, you know, in addition to the, ten, the original Ten Commandments, some 600 more commandments were added to the Mosaic law. They said, well, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? And many of you may know this, but Jesus said, well, all right, love God. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second is like it. He added a little, little, addend, little addendum there. The second is like, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor equally to you. Right? Love God Love your neighbor as yourself. And, and, and in doing this, like, and beginning to express this, if a, if a human comes in alignment with this truth, with Jesus, and they begin to love God, like, whole, wholeheartedly, with their whole mind, or their whole heart, their whole strength, and they start looking at their neighbors as, like, these are equals to me, and, and I can love them in the name of Jesus, they, they experience God's love in a way that frees them from fear and insecurity, that so often causes us to act out in a negative way in order to get attention. It, 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 God's love frees them and frees us from self-centeredness where we always have to make sure our needs are met for, before we can possibly meet the needs of someone else. God, God's love gives 
people the courage to stand up for what is right, even when that stand is not popular, right? And the courage to speak truth and love to those who are making destructive decisions. Encouraging people to live in accordance to what God desires, not only for themselves, but for all of humanity, right? God's love and truth, when it really is alive in you, it helps you see those who are unseen. It helps you see uh, the ones who've been forgotten, the ones who can't stand for themselves. God's love and truth doesn't ignore injustice because love needs action. And action is a proof of love's truth. And so finally that leads us to the, the third observation in the second book of John, which is love needs wisdom. Because some, some, some crazy things were already happening. And so this, in, in the first century, some fractures were already occurring. And this is what John writes to this church. He, he said, I say all this about walking in love and love for one another because I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming, as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. And any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now, by antichrist, he doesn't mean like Mark of the Beast, 666. He just says, he's just saying, they're opposed to Jesus. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching with Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Now, he doesn't mean don't bring them in for some lemonade on a hot Texas day, nothing like that, right? He's like saying don't have a conversation. He's saying don't Help them. Don't financially support them. Don't give them a pulpit or a place or a platform to spread their agenda. He says, because in fact, if you do this, anyone who welcomes them in this way, they share in their wicked work. Because here's what's interesting. A sinister cult-like situation was already happening by the time John writes this letter. Right? In John's lifetime and already by the second half of the first century, there are fractures forming in the culture. People were changing the narrative of Jesus, who he was. And they were going against the eyewitness testimony of those who had walked with them. And one such group, they were known as the Gnostics. They were teaching that Jesus was just a man and that the spirit of the Messiah maybe entered him, you know, at baptism, but left him before he went to the cross and that he was not really God in the flesh. And they taught that Jesus was fully man, but certainly was not fully God. And they believed that the body was evil and the spirit was good. Other New Testament letters, you should know, corroborate this, and we see the result of this type of false teaching in the first century, leading to widespread immorality and many people abandoning their faith, their newly found faith in Christ. So John warns, as the last eyewitness, do not buy into this cult-like presence and its false teaching and do not support them in any way. No provision against being kind to them, no provision against having a conversation to them, with them, but certainly in no way do not financially support them, do not give a platform to them that you might give into, their, give into the lies. John warns that anyone who does not center their message on Jesus Christ alone as God incarnate, God in the flesh, as the own source of truth and love living through us, that they are charlatan lovers at best, and they have their own personal agenda at the forefront of their message. He warns us not to fall prey to false teachers and to not get swept up in watered-down messages or false narratives and false gospels. That takes wisdom. It takes real wisdom. And, it, and it's as relevant a warning today as it was in the late first century, you should know. 
It's every bit as relevant now as it was then. You see, we're living in a time as a culture where we, we often espouse, and maybe you've caught on this, we espouse the language of virtue all over our culture, right? And we talk about ideas that, that actually Jesus himself brought to the human conversation. Ideas like equality and love, for example. These were new narratives that Jesus brought to the human conversation, you should know. Right? Like when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, he said, love them equally, like equality. And now we love the idea of equality, but we don't love the person who came and brought the concept to bear on, on, human, on the human conversation. We want to talk about it without talking about Jesus, right? We love to talk about love. And, what, and, and love, love would do this and love would do that, but without talking about the one who is love, the actual embodiment of love. And, it's, and, and even, even, even as far as like, like, you could even love your enemy. Jesus said it's possible. I, I think Jesus would say, you can love your enemy with me in you because that's what I've done, Right? That's what Jesus would say. Humanity has been my enemy, and hum- humanity is the one that killed me. But I still love. I choose to love them in response. And he loves all of humanity. Yet the culture often wants to separate the very ideals from the person of Jesus himself, the one who brought them, the one who is them. In our culture, it's, it's okay to talk about the ideals and even credit other people with these ideas but not credit them to or recognize that they're actually the embodiment of Jesus Christ himself. Several years ago, my wife and I were in Chicago. We live in Chicago, and we were sitting in a restaurant, and all over the walls were littered with these quotes from modern-day people. And all these quotes, interestingly enough, I started calling them cover tunes. Do you know what a cover tune is? A cover, you know, like an original artist is the original writer of the song, right? And then some other artists come along and cover the song. It's called cover tunes, and they're called cover bands. And we were sitting in a restaurant, and I was like, Shala, and look at all these cover tunes. And she was like, yeah, what do you mean? And I was like, look, look over there. And, and, and one of them said, if one wants to find their life, they must first lose their life in service to others. And it quoted a modern day person. And I was like, uh, that's Jesus, <laughs> right? Right, that's Jesus. And then another one said, uh, if you really want to love, love the person that lives right next to you. Quoted another modern-day person. Uh, it was, uh, uh, that's Jesus. Love your neighbor. <laughs> right? And then another one said, uh, you know, it's, e- it's easy to love those who agree with you, but love those who disagree with you and are opposed to you. Quoted another modern-day person. It's, uh, it's Jesus. Love your enemy. Right? All these cover tunes. Credited to modern people, all covers of Jesus, but none of them actually crediting Jesus. So this is a dangerous thing to do because what it does is it produces people who talk about love a lot, but seldom walk in it and live in it. As a result, real human issues of injustice to this very day, to this very hour, are still being co-opted by political parties, Right? And we often see people relegated to wanting to be right more than they want to actually be a person known for real love. If you don't believe me, just watch the election cycle coming up this year. It promises to be brutal. And here's the thing that saddens me. It's really sad. The church is very often a great offender here as well. And that's why we need to heed John's words of warning. 
Which brings us back to the original question. What is love? You see, John was convinced, and he did everything he could to convince everyone he could, including me and you, of the truth of Jesus. And I too, I will tell you, I am convinced. I'm convinced that love is a person, and love is a name, and that name is Jesus. And I'm convinced that Jesus gave his whole self for us, that he laid down his very life for you and for me. And we can in turn offer ourselves to him, that we can literally lay down our lives, or or, or die to ourselves in order to find a way to live in the way of Jesus. But here's the thing. It's not a question that I can answer for you. What is love? It's a question that only you can answer for yourself. You, you have to choose. Do you choose charlatan less than lovers, second-rate lovers at best that are littered all throughout your lives and your culture that we all live in? Or do you choose the whole perfect love of God? choice really is yours. And as this song plays, I'm going to really ask, I really want to ask you to be very respectful in this time. I know some of you probably want to leave. We're still a little early. We still have time. Uh, you want to beat traffic, whatever you want to get out. But I'm asking you to stay put. Because for some people in this room, this might be a very real moment for them where they're considering what is love. And maybe if you're here and you've never, you've never come to terms with who God is and who Jesus is, maybe in this moment, I just pray that, I, I, my prayer for you is that you would risk right now, that you would just say, maybe to the God you don't, yet, you don't even think you believe in, God, if you're there, do, what is love? And does love have a name? And see if you get a response. And for the rest of us, let us be reminded of what real love is. May, us be, may we be ambassadors of that love. But as you listen to this beautiful version of this classic one-hit wonder, Consider what is love. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me.
It's not a troubled mind It isn't anxious It's not the restless kind Your love's not passive It's never disengaged It's always present It hangs on every word you say Love keeps its promises It keeps its word It honors what's sacred Cause its vows are good Your love's not broken It's not insecure Your love's not selfish That's the thing. It's your choice. You have to choose. Do you choose these less than lovers that are littered all throughout our lives, or do you choose this whole love for God, for God, from God? And that's a question I really want you to to wrestle with today. And uh, today, what we've done is we've made communion available for those of us who have wrestled that down and fallen head over heels in love with Jesus. There's communion available. It's a reminder to us of this, uh, this bread, this is a body broken, this juice, this cup, the blood that was sacrificed for the sake of humanity. Maybe today you want to partake in that type of thing for the first time. I would encourage you to come talk with somebody on our prayer team. They'd love to walk you through that process and go over and receive communion.
for the first time, it would be great. The choice really is yours. What do you do? What is love for you? Who is it? Does it have a name? Today we also have available a starting gate in just a few moments, and I want to just give you a word here that Second John actually wraps up with John saying, I have much more to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. I want to do this face-to-face, and it would appear I'm out of time as well. <laughs> so... I just want to let you know that next week, uh, you, during this week, you might want to go and read the book of 2 John, dive into it for yourself. I recommend the Bible Project online. You can check out uh, great uh, videos based on certain books of the Bible. And then maybe in preparation for next week, you might want to read the book of Jude, another one page, kind of definitely a one-hit wonder there. Uh, I hope you have a great Sunday. I hope you have a great week. Let me pray us out. Jesus, we are grateful to be together. I pray that you will move significantly amongst us. Thank you for John and his testimony, his consistent testimony of who you are and why you came and why you live on. God, I pray for, the, for anyone in this room contemplating that decision for the first time to walk in the light with Jesus, that they would be bold and courageous. And God, for the rest of us, that we would, we would be ambassadors of love in our culture, that we'd be a countercultural lovers who represent the very presence Jesus on this planet, and we would do it well. And we pray it all in His name. Amen. Thank you. Have a great week.